Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Today, we have an old friend of mine on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dr. Eugene Schoenfeld. He was known to us in the 60s and 70s as Dr. Hippocrates. Actually, his friends called him Dr. Hip. He perhaps is one of the pioneers in medical journalism, and he was really quite famous and quite well-liked in the Bay Area for bringing medical science to popular newspapers. We're gonna hear some more about that. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health and Politics, Gene. Thank you, Richard. So let's go back some years to start off with and tell us, how did you become Dr. Hip? Well, I was uh, living in Berkeley then and I knew the publisher of the Berkeley Barb, Max Shearer. And I would see him peddling a four page Berkeley Barb then. And I said to him, you should have a medical column like real newspaper. And he said, well, why don't you write it? And I thought about it a while and people were asking me questions uh, about the effects of uh, drugs and the, uh, the new sexuality at the time. And so I put together a column based on questions that friends and acquaintances had asked me. And after that, letters started coming in and it became the most popular feature in the Berkeley Barb. Then, after a couple of years, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle and Examiner asked me to uh, write for them. And so for a number of years, the column was in the Sunday edition of the combined Chronicle Examiner. And did you continue to get letters? Yes, I got many letters. Uh, the sheer of the Barb said, well, how about calling the column Hip? Hippocrates, because it was the time of the hippies. I said, okay. And then some of the newspapers, uh, because the underground newspapers soon picked it up, they were calling it Dr. Hippocrates and then Dr. Hip. And so people started calling me Dr. Hip then. And eventually did the uh, article get around the United States? Yes, uh, it was syndicated by uh, United Press Syndicate. Well, that's terrific. And uh, when did you stop writing it, Gene, and why? I stopped first in 1973, so I thought then I had answered all the uh, the questions that <laughs> about, about drugs and sexuality, and it became uh, difficult. It was a burden, it seemed to. Every week, I was standing in the column. If I traveled, I was carrying around letters with me, uh, so I decided to stop. But I, I uh, did it again from 1975 to in 79 again, then, then I stopped. In the Chronicle I, I in the Chronicle again? Yes, it was in the Chronicle. Yeah. Uh, I, I had joined a group of uh, medical volunteers to go to the uh, Cambodian borders during the time of Pol Pot. And, and so I stopped at that time. I, I have not written regularly since that time. Well, I want you to know that you influenced me, you and Dean Adele, who I'm sure you know, Yes, who I interviewed on this program for Psychedelic Wisdom. You two were the big influences in my life with regard to journalism. I've been broadcasting mind, body, health and politics now for about 20 years. But it was your influence and Dean's that really got me into it, because in the 80s, I started a radio program in uh, in the Bay Area. And I also had a column in the Chronicle for a couple of years uh, called Miller and Miller on Psychology. And I laughed when I asked you, 
why you stopped writing it, because I stopped writing for the same reason. I ran out of questions. I mean, they asked the same questions over and over, and I there were no new questions. So I guess I figured it was time to fold. Yeah, I was honored when uh, Dean Adele told a journalist that I had inspired him to do his radio programs. Oh, that's that's that's, that's lovely, and. Uh, from from you're a psychiatrist in addition to being a medical doctor, uh, correct? Yes. And um, for a great part of your career, as I recall, uh, you lived in Sausalito and practiced in that area, Sausalito, California. Yes. And more recently, you've moved your office and your home to San Rafael, California. That's right. Okay. Well, that makes it easy for people to get in touch with you should they want to as a result of this interview, because I was pleased to hear before the interview that the ripe young age of 87, you're still practicing. Yes. Uh, the other day I read an article about a 100-year-old neurologist who is still practicing. So he's my hero. I love that. I, I, I uh, did an article on the blue zones, you know, the five places in the world where the people live the longest. And um, uh, that was commissioned uh, by National Geographic magazine. And I heard about a surgeon in Loma Vista, California, who's still doing surgery. So I did a little research on him. And I found out that one of the things he does is when he wakes up in the morning, he drinks 16 ounces of water immediately. And that was a couple of years ago. Since that time, I've been drinking 32 ounces of water uh, when I get up in the morning, and then 32 ounces again at lunch, and 32 ounces again at dinner, which means by the end of the day, I've consumed 96 ounces, which is half my body weight in ounces that some doctors, as you know, are recommending. Uh, I'm not saying it's uh, convincing or there are double blind studies on it, but I can tell you of all the things I've tried over the decades, as I'm sure you have as well, uh, whether it's vegetarianism, I'm presently mostly vegan, uh, but I've also been a meat eater. I've tried supplements, no supplements, etc. The one thing that has affected me the most is this extra hydration. It really seems to be having a positive effect on my system. It's quite interesting. I'm also, of course, urinating constantly. I was going to say, maybe because you're being kept up all night, you're dried out in the morning. Yeah, well, I, I've, uh, I, I am kept up some of the night, but fortunately, I've made my peace with the fun of going back to sleep again. So now you're living in San Rafael. You're still practicing psychiatry. Yeah. Uh, are you living alone or are you living with somebody? Uh, right now I'm living alone. And I, I just had my, my daughter with me for a month. For oh, how wonderful. Was that, related, was that related to the pandemic in some way? Uh, no, she had a summer break. She's 10 years old. Um, and I had her for a month, but no, now I'm alone. She left the other day. Her mother came to pick her up. I see. And where does she live? She lives in uh, Southern California in Riverside County. Oh, so it's not the easiest thing for you yeah. to get to see her. Yeah, it's really difficult. Oh, yeah, I can see by the look on your face. It's really difficult. Yeah, I, yeah I can relate to that. I've been through divorce and uh, that's a challenging situation. Um, when you where did you grow up, Gene? I was born in the uh, Bronx, New York. Uh, during the Second World War, I lived in New Orleans for 
couple of years, my father was working in the shipyards nearby. Uh, the family moved to Miami Beach when I was 12. So I graduated from Miami Beach High School. I uh, went to University of Miami for a year, and then I had a girlfriend who was accepted to Berkeley. And so I transferred to Berkeley, and I graduated from uh, UC Berkeley. You lucky dog. Well, what a wonderful thing to have that girlfriend to move you to Berkeley at that time. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah, wow. that, was, that was in uh, 1953. Oh, my gosh. Oh, you lucky guy. Wow. Yeah. What a time. What a time to be there. Yeah, it was great. And and uh, what hospital in the Bronx were you born in? The Bronx Hospital. It wasn't Bronx Royal Hospital, Bronx Hospital, or was it Bronx Royal? I think it was Bronx Hospital. I, I, I was just told it was Bronx Hospital. It's okay. delivered, I was delivered by my, my uncle, who was a nephew of Arnold Rothstein, who had fixed the 1919 World Series. So I remember Arnie Rothstein, of course. I know the yeah. story. Yeah, That's so right. He fixed the World Series. Yes, he was my he's my great uncle by marriage. <laughs> <laughs> so as you were growing up into adulthood, were you brought up with religion? No, no. My father was a, a communist and atheist. And I, I was always told, you know, I was Jewish, but there was no uh, no religion associated with that in my home. And as you were growing up, did you have a conception of God or something like God, or how did you deal with uh, the fact that other people believed in God as you were growing up? Well, I tried to have such a belief. I would look up at the skies at night and wonder, you know, where we came from, where we're going, and things like that. Uh, but no, I never, never uh, believed in a, a God. Now, now regarded as like fairy tales that people are, are indoctrinated with. So you don't believe, for example, that when you die and go to heaven, they're going to be uh, scores of angels playing harps wait, wait, waiting for you? Well, I'd like to uh, like to encounter that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the reason I asked the question that way, Gene, is because Skelly and Kelovich and White, one of the foremost um, focus group uh, data collecting outfits in the United States, have published results saying that 53% of the American public believe that there will be angels with playing harps in heaven when they die. Yes. So I was trying to find out if you were part of that group or not. No, it's a little disconcerting, isn't it? If you walk down the street and you see a crowd of people and half of them believe in things like angels. Half of them believe in things yeah. like angels. Well, the only thing that what I've come to believe about those people is if that helps them get through their day, if that makes their lives easier, maybe it's just as well they believe in such things. But I'm really trying to make excuses for them because personally, I think such thinking is dangerous and it takes us away from the magnificence of the present moment and gives us dreams of what things are going to be like later on when we're dead, which I think is a sales pitch for religion. You know, things will be better, so suffer now. Yeah, I, I find, it, find it interesting that that people who are otherwise quite intelligent and talented still believe in such things. I know. So be it. You graduated from the University of California, Berkeley. Yes. And then I gather you went on to medical school at some point. Yes, I uh, I had first majored in uh, history and music, and I went through 
college quickly. I graduated in three years. I was just 20 years old. And then I decided, well, I'll go to, I'd like to go to medical school. Uh, I had been accepted to UC Berkeley Law School. Uh, I decided, no, I don't want to do that. So I did, I was a graduate student at Berkeley for two years. And then I went to the University of Miami School of Medicine. Oh, you went back to Miami. Yes. For some warm study. Well, we have similar backgrounds. My father was an atheist as well. Uh, he wasn't a communist. He was progressive, but he was a military guy during the war. So he didn't go you know, too far in that direction. But I, he, he did come from a line of atheists. And I also uh, I graduated high school in, uh, at 16 and graduated college at 20, like you did, and then went on to graduate school uh, and also considered law just the way you did as well. Fascinating. Later, uh, I got a master's in public health uh, from Yale uh, because during medical school, I had an opportunity to travel to Africa, uh, including to the Albert Schweitzer Hospital. Oh. And I spent a couple of weeks in the summer of 1959 there. And I, the following summer, I got a fellowship to return the whole summer to the Schweitzer Hospital. And uh, and then later, five years later, I got another fellowship to do a study of cardiology in, in Gabon. Uh, and it was during the last trip, when I was there for six months, that I uh, was introduced to a native doctor named Ngoa Michel, who was using uh, Ibogaine in his uh, ceremonies, because he was using it from the Iboga plant. Um, and because of uh, that contact, I decided to change my goal of being in public health to uh, psychiatry because I, well, I went ahead to a little bit too much. I'm sure you're interested in the first time I used the psychedelic, which was in the summer of, uh, it was in August of 1965. So that was some time later. Did you try the Ibogaine while you were in Africa? Uh, a little, yes. And then later I obtained a uh, quantity of it in, uh, in Paris and uh, returned to the uh, Bay Area and did some experimentation with uh, David Smith. And it was during that time that, that David had the idea of organizing the little uh, clinics that had been you know, tended to by the diggers into one free clinic. And I had the idea of, of writing columns. And it was, that was due to the influence of the uh, Ibogaine. And so what material or substance rather did you use for your first, very first psychedelic experience? It was LSD. And do you have any idea what the dosage was? I was told it was a 300 microgram. Thank you. Please give us as much detail as you can remember these 60 odd years later of that first LSD experience. Well, I was in Berkeley. I was staying in a, uh, a friend's little uh, cottage behind a main house. Uh, I had read as much as I could about LSD at that time. A lot of information coming out then in magazines. I read as much as I could. I was very interested, of course, in the, the workings of the mind. Uh, a, a woman friend was supposed to come and, and sit with me during the experience. Uh, she was unable to do so. So my first psychedelic experience with LSD, I, I was alone. And of course, it was, a, you know, for me, a strange experience to see walls breathing, uh, 
the sensation of seeing music. Um, Synesthesia. Yes, yes. Um, it was a very powerful experience for me. Uh, it seemed that I stayed high for a week, and uh, I was about I was about to go to uh, to Africa on his third uh, trip there, and I was watching TV, and there was a news report. It showed a map of Africa, and then it honed out to Gabon and announced that Albert Schweitzer had died. I, I, had, I mean, you're asking how, what happened, you know, I felt that it felt, it felt as if his substance had entered, had entered me. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. It was, it was very odd and powerful experience. And powerful, very powerful. Very powerful. Did you feel as if he transmitted to you in some way, like information or wisdom or spirit? Did it have that kind of sense to it, like something was transmitted to you? And I'm going to tell you why I'm asking in that way, Gene, because I had a similar experience with Leo Zeff, whom you know, the, the yes. book, there was a book written about uh, Dr. Leo Zeff called The Secret Chief. Yeah. And one time when he administered uh, LSD to me, I and took me, he was holding my hand during the experience. I had an experience that I resonate to when I hear about how you felt when when you heard about Schweitzer's death. So that's why I'm asking if you felt like there was a, a some kind of a transmission. It, it, I mean, it felt that way. Yes, it, it did. I mean, because I, I knew Albert Schweitzer you know, during his life and uh, the experience there was very powerful for me. When I first went to the Schweitzer Hospital, I had gone there from a, a safari, an elephant safari that I'd, I'd taken to Angola with uh, Ernest Hemingway's younger son, Greg. And so I went from an experience where we were trying to kill elephants, and one was killed, to the Schweitzer Hospital where nothing was unnecessarily killed. In the dining room, uh, there was you know, one of the walls was just screened, and there were little windows. In the uh, in that screen wall, one could open the little window and, and let out moths that had gone into the dining room. For example, uh, I, I would see Schweitzer, you know, working, helping his uh, workers, uh, pushing a wheelbarrow, and they'd come to a line of ants and they'd pick up the wheelbarrow so they would not crush the ants. Uh, and so, I mean, that, those are very powerful experiences. And um, as I said, I went from trying to kill elephants to a, to a place where uh, his philosophy was, was practiced in life called reverence for life. That's exactly the words that came to my mind as you told the story about lifting the wheelbarrow over the ants, a yes. reverence, a reverence for all things living. Yes. So that first LSD experience again, which seemed to last for an entire week, uh, you saw the walls breathing. Yes. All right. You saw things. What did it have an effect on your sense of connection with humanity, with the world in some way? Yes, yes. It, it, I mean, it reinforced, you know, the lessons I, I learned, you know, at the uh, Schweitzer Hospital. Yes. And ap approximately how old were you during that first big LSD experience with 300 micrograms of LSD? I was 30 years old then. Okay. And you were alone. Yes. For that first experience. And what happened after that? Did you say to yourself, oh, boy, 
this is something I'm going to do again? Or did you say, oh, no, I don't think I'll ever do again or somewhere in the middle? What was your, what's your memory of what you came away with with regard to using such a powerful medicine? I, I didn't have an urge to uh, use it again then. It was a year before I used LSD again. And in between, we're 30 years old. You took LSD for the first time. You had a big experience. The next one came a year later. Did you use any other kind of substances during that year, during your 30 or 31st year of your life? Well, marijuana, of course. Marijuana. Okay. And what can you tell us about your memory of early marijuana? All right. The first time I, I saw marijuana, I was 14 years old. I had an uncle who was in a in show business, he was visiting our family in Miami Beach, and I had a, a date. I asked if I could borrow his jacket. I said yes, and in, in one of the pockets, I found this little yellow, uh, you know, joint, which I deduced was marijuana. And I asked him if it was marijuana, and he said offhandedly, "Yes." I mean, that was the same year that Robert Mitchum was put in jail uh, for marijuana use. It was 1949, uh, but I I didn't smoke. Uh, I, I tried to smoke cigarettes and I couldn't, thankfully. You know, a cough would make me nauseated. So I, I didn't smoke then. Uh, but that was the first time I had held marijuana in my hand. But the first time I, I smoked it and got high, I was in Greece in 1963. I was on my way to a, a little Greek island, Idra, where I had then spent time with uh, Leonard Cohn. Before Leonard was uh, was singing and writing songs, he was then a well-regarded writer and poet. Uh, but that was the first time I got high on, on marijuana, was in Greece. With, Co- with Cohen? Yes, yes. And tell, that's a story itself. How did you, uh, how did you come to meet Leonard Cohen? Well, he was living on Idra then with, uh, with a woman named Marianne then and, and her little uh, son, Axel. That's, remember, he has a song, Marianne, Goodbye, Marianne. Uh, but they were living there then, and there were a few uh, expatriates on Idra then. And they would have parties, and Leonard would come to the parties, and uh-huh. marijuana was used. And how did it affect you? Well, they'd be high, happy, hungry, you know. High, happy, and hungry. Yes. Do, you, do you associate back then any particular psychological or physiological, what you would call health benefits? Did the relaxation, did you feel that 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 it had, you were looking at it from a certain medicinal perspective, even though it was an illegal substance? Because you're a medical doctor, you must have thought about the possibility of how this stuff is affecting you. Yes. I mean, I wasn't using it medicinally for myself, you know, but I recognized that it could be useful for people who had difficulty with their appetite, because it causes the munchies, and it, it also seemed to relieve anxiety immediately. So, you know, I recognized then that it did have medicinal properties. And what about the muscle relaxation effects? Well, they, they must have been noticeable to you way back then in those early days. Well, yes. I mean, it, it, I heard stories of people who would get high in marijuana and then exercise or do sports. Uh, but I mean, for me, I just like to uh, lounge around. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so you're 30 years old. By the way, for those of you listening, Dr. Hip, 
Dr. Eugene Schoenfeld, is 87 years old. So we're going back 57 years right now, and I hope you're enjoying the journey with us. So you, you took the LSD, 300 micrograms. A year later, for the second time, you have another, you have a psychedelic experience. Tell us about that one. Uh, I, I returned to, uh, to Berkeley, and some friends took me to see fireworks. And they gave me some LSD. So I saw the fireworks on LSD, which is seemed, you know, extraordinary. I like fireworks anyway. And it was a, a beautiful, awe-inspiring experience. So 33, you're 30 or 31 years old. I'm guessing you were born in around 1933. Five. Five. So uh, you're, you're uh, 35, 25. You're 28 years old or 30 years old. Friends give you some LSD and you take it. You're a well-trained medical doctor. Much of the United States is afraid of such things. They still are. How, do you, how did you happen to have the courage? Your friends give you, you say it like, you know, they handed me an umbrella. And so I put it over my head. You, you say it so casually. How did you have the courage to just take this stuff again, given that you knew from the year before that it was so powerful? Do you have some idea of how you had the, the presence and the, and the courage to just take it and, and, and just like that? Well, I mean, I trusted my friends, and ah. I had read a lot about LSD, and I continued to read what I could about LSD, and uh, it's good to have trusted friends. I, so it's a, okay. So that's a, that's a great answer. I trusted my friends. Now, I just want to go back again a little bit to that first experience, uh, the one where you were alone and you took 300 micrograms. After that experience, did you share the experience with colleagues and friends? Uh, I did with, with friends uh, and with some trusted colleagues, because at that time, even though it was still legal in a way, I mean, it wasn't legal to use it in medicine. It was, it was not made illegal yet at that time. So That's right. friends that, that I trusted, yes, I, I did share with them. And so you picked up stories and shared stories. Yes. yes, you're correct. That was, it was LSD was still legal until 1967. And that's by in 67, you were then 32. So we were sub 32 at that time. Okay. So then you took it uh, and saw the fireworks. Mm -hmm. And anything else to report on that particular second experience? Well, I had, you know, after, you know, it, participating in some of the uh, Iboga experiences in uh, Gabon. I read that the French, for a time, in the early 1940s, were using small amounts of ibogaine mixed with vitamins and selling it over the counter as a pick-me-up. And, and that's when I discovered that small amounts of psychedelics act as a stimulant. And I believe that's what people are experiencing now when they, they're microdosing, because I believe that microdoses of psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD have a stimulant effect, similar to stimulants like Adderall or, or Ritalin. Um, I, when, I was, when I began writing my newspaper column, I met uh, Timothy Leary, who was then living in Berkeley. And subsequently, I became a doctor for, for Tim and his uh, wife, Rosemary, and Tim's children, uh, Jack and Susan. And so, and, you know, I met you know, through Tim, 
you know, many, uh, many interesting people like Ralph Metzner and Richard Alpert, who then uh, decided to become Ram Dass. Uh, his father called him Baba Ram Dumb. But... <laughs> How did, uh, a, how did a nice Jewish boy get a name like Ramdas, huh? Really, really, yeah. Uh, I met Michael Hollingshead, who had first given LSD to Tim. Uh, I met many, uh, many people that way. And, and then later, you know, through uh, Tim's adventures and misadventures, you know, I, I, when he was in exile in Switzerland, I, I visited him in Rosemary there. And after he was captured in Afghanistan, uh, I was asked to help bring his uh, new lover at the time, Joanna Harcourt Smith, into the country. Um, and then I visited him in various prisons where he was and had a lot of contact with him until, until I learned you know, he was so desperate to get out of prison. He was, seemed he was ratting on his friends and lawyers. So I reduced my contact with him then. How did that affect you personally to find out that that our, our uh, psychedelic hero, if you will, turned into a snitch. It uh, didn't go well with me. I, I, by then, I, I was working with a lot of lawyers, you know, and I still do. I consult on cases. Uh, and they, especially Tony Serra's group, I mean, they hated snitches. Uh, and I don't know, I've never been in jail or, or prison, so, but I like to think I would you know, I wouldn't snitch on people. Yeah, I, I understand. So you were you were meeting through Tim Leary, uh, various people in the psychedelic movement, which definitely must have influenced you to experiment uh, additionally. So after that second experience, when you saw the fireworks, take us now forward into your history of using psychedelics. Which psychedelics did you use? And what can you tell us about some of your experiences back in those days? Well, I mean, when I was uh, doing some research with David Smith, at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco, I mean, we were working with laboratory animals like mice, rats, you know, giving them various doses of amphetamines and seeing the effects of, of crowding you know, on their behavior, uh, as well as the effects of increasing the doses. Of course, the more crowded they were, the more aggressive they were. Um, and I had this supply of Ibogaine and took some, David took some too. And I remember him telling me that looking into a, a toilet bowl and seeing his reflection in, in there it was odd. It was, uh, I, I found that Ibogaine was, of course, it was plant-based. And like uh, pl most plant-based psychedelics, there's a lot of uh, gastrointestinal uh, things that go on, vomiting, diarrhea. You know, and that was true with the uh, Ibogaine. It, it was long acting. It seemed to last for almost a couple of days. Yeah, those vomiting and diarrhea, uh, what, what are referred to as medicinal side effects, I, I call unwanted complications of medicine, <laughs> OCM, because the, as you know, and I know, uh, calling it a side effect is like the pharmacy's way of sanitizing some stuff that's really uncomfortable. They don't really happen on our side. They happen to our entire system. And they, and they really are unwanted complications to the medicine. Uh, and, and that's why I personally have shied away after Leo gave me some Ibogaine one time. I've shied away from it because the things that have heavy regurgitation uh, don't work for me. 
I, I don't buy into this whole shamanic business of you need to purge, you're purging out, uh, you know, bad psychological juju. I think <laughs> I think you're puking because there's an emetic in there and, and it, yeah. it wants the stuff out of your system. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I remember I asked Stephen Beyer one time, the ethnobotanist who wrote Talking to the Plants. I said, give us the straight scoop on ayahuasca in terms of all this puking and regurgitation that goes on. And he said, Richard, it's quite simple. The natives needed something to throw up because their food was so rotten. They didn't have re refrigeration back then. And they came upon mixing these two plants and it made them puke. And so they, th that was very helpful. And then they discovered that they also had these various visions. So they built a whole culture around the visions uh, to make it possible to puke. And then I thought, <laughs> <laughs> that that sounded like the straight scoop to me. So I've, I've never been a fan of that. But on the other hand, as we know, that rarely happens. Tell me if you agree with this. That rarely happens with LSD. Right. Uh, it can happen. Uh, of course, it's best to fast for some hours before using uh, LSD or, or any psychedelic. But it is possible to get sick on LSD if one has eaten just before taking it. So yeah, yeah. same with psilocybin. Yes, that's right. Very much so. Yeah. So you were very, very fortunate, Gene. You were so fortunate, not only in terms of the people that you got to associate with, but you were fortunate to be able to use these substances while they were still legal. So you weren't looking over your shoulder. You weren't made into an overnight criminal. That is something that has been deeply concerning to me these past uh, 33, 50, 55 years that honest people around the country, good citizens, honest doctors like yourself, all around the United States, as well as other people, were turned into criminals as soon as these substances were made illegal. Right. That's, right. A, that's a terrible thing for honest people yeah. to start to think of themselves as somehow criminals who have to hide or have to be worried about being stopped in their car. And if they find some LSD, they could go to jail or some marijuana or something. A horrendous thing that happened then. And so what happened to you with your experimentation once these substances, LSD in particular, became illegal in 1967? Well, I was able to, to write and talk about, because I did a radio show too, um, I could write and talk about LSD because I had used it while it was legal. I was also using it when it was illegal, but I could, you know, if someone asked me, how did I know about these effects? I, I could say, well, it was legal when I took it. Right. I always thought, well, you know, I'm not involved in selling it or distributing it. And I always thought that, you know, that gave me some kind of protection that it could only be through some sort of accident, you know, that I would be faulted, you know, for, for using it or having small amounts. Okay. So we now know after a few LSD experiences, you had the Ibogaine experience, you experienced the Ibogaine unwanted complications. Did you go on then to continue to experiment with various psychedelics? And if so, which yes. ones? And tell us about the, the, your different experiences, please. Well, uh, I used uh, peyote, um, and peyote, at least for me, always produced those gastrointestinal uh, effects. 
uh, I use mescaline, which I, I found to be uh, maybe one of the most desirable ones. It didn't, it didn't produce so many of those synesthesias, but it, it enhanced everything. Uh, in the same with, I had a chance to use MDA, MDA. MDA was first synthesized by Sasha Shogun. And I'm not speaking about MDMA, which is ecstasy. Shogun discovered the uh, effects in humans, but he also invented a drug called MDA, and that was a powerful drug, seemed very erotic. Um, but I think there were a couple of deaths that were associated with MDMA. Just as, as there have been a number of deaths from Ibogaine, but the uh, you know, but I was always, of course, very careful about dosing. And uh, I found that, yes, psychedelics were wonderful for making love. Of course, that's something that has been kept secret because the country is so pleasure and sex averse, yes. at, at least publicly, that anything that's associated with the enhanced sexuality gets condemned publicly, but not necessarily privately, because as you well know, this is one of the great hypocrisies of our culture, that we say one thing about sex and then we do other things when we think nobody knows. Yes. And even now, when some communities have decriminalized uh, psilocybin and evil gain, they haven't decriminalized LSD. You know, somehow uh, it's more acceptable that these, are, these other psychedelics are plant-based, whereas LSD is synthesized in a laboratory. Yes. As you well know, and you're going to tell us now, one of the reasons, one of the major contributing factors to the fact that it's probably going to take the longest to get LSD legalized again is something that happened during that very exciting era that you were so involved in, namely Timothy Leary becoming a counterculture figure. Tell us what you remember about those times and how he raised the banner of turn on, tune in and drop out. Well, he, uh, for one thing, most of the time when he was giving lectures, uh, he would be high on LSD. I remember Rosemary complaining to me once that, you know, she had to take the LSD all the time when, uh, when he did. Uh, and yes, he was saying, turn on, tune in, drop out. You know, I said to him, I said, Tim, you've got a PhD. You know, I've got an MD. You're telling these college students to drop out of school, and they are. There are a lot of a lot of uh, students dropped out of school because uh, of what Tim was saying. He was very charismatic. Of course, he was very intelligent, very bright. He had a great sense of humor. And uh, Tim ran for governor at one time, and he became convinced he might actually win. But that you know that wasn't uh, realistic. Uh, and he said he would say. Everyone should take LSD once a week. Well, I tried that for a few weeks, and I found it, it interfered with my, my usual life. You know, I, it was not, not a good thing to do that. Tell us, do you think that overall what he did by raising the banner so high to young people, promoting LSD um, use, do you think that set us back? Do you think that had a an effect on, on the uh, political situation? Or do you think we would have been, it would have been banned anyway 
just the way marijuana had already been banned. And we ended up banning, you know, various things. A lot due, as you well know, to this guy, Harry Anslinger, who went on a campaign starting right. in 1935. Right. You know, right. And that was for reasons that of uh, of race, of racism, because uh, Anslinger, the head of the Federal Narcotics Bureau, the first one, was a racist and he used the drug laws as a way to attack people of color. And of course, Nixon then in the 70s did the exact same thing. He, he used the drug laws as a way to attack the hippie culture and the black community. And that's well documented. Yeah, Nixon denounced you know, hippies, Jews and communists. So I thought when he did that, hey, that's me, you know, <laughs> you know, raised as a, as a communist. Here I am, Dr. Hip. Uh, yeah, it was not a good time. I've got a great quote in my book, uh, Psychode uh, Psychedelic Wisdom, uh, of Nixon saying to Haldeman, what's the story with these Jews? They're all psychiatrists. <laughs> <laughs> so it's laughable. But again, well, cons cons considering, yes, but considering that it came from the president of the United States and, uh, and then he, he used it because... Because what Haldeman ad admitted, as we all well know, and he, he admitted it, we heard it right on the tape. He's saying, of course, we knew that we couldn't get the counterculture and the blacks directly. But we also knew that if we accuse them, the hippies of, of marijuana use and the blacks of heroin use, we could attack them on the news every single night. And that's basically what they did. And it's a stain on, on the American character that that happened. So tell us about Anything you can say about how LSD enhanced your life intellectually, spiritually, in any way? Did it did it serve to enhance your life or was it a great trip in the park and that was it? No, it enhanced my life greatly and occasionally still does. Can you describe in some ways uh, that enhancement? Well, it, it helps look behind you know when i first experienced it i, I could see why uh, it was thought that you could cut through years of uh, traditional psychoanalysis you know by the use of, of lsd uh it just helps to see things more actually realistically in a way so it gives you a a a, per a perception another way of looking at your life that you can use beneficially? Would that be accurate to say? Yes, yes. And uh, I mean, sometimes, you know, people use it just for fun, you know, uh, depending upon the person and the circumstances, that's okay. But it has, you know, it has great, great value. It was used, you know, before it was uh, made illegal. There were, there were a number of psychiatrists who were using LSD to treat addictions like alcoholism. And uh, they were having some success with that. Now, finally, you know, there are a few research institutions who are committed to do some research with LSD now, but we lost 55, 60 years, you know, because of the prohibition against LSD. Finally, finally there, there's acceptance and there's, there's a great deal of enthusiasm now in the, uh, in the psychological and psychiatric communities, you know, about the potential use of psychedelics. You and I are both still practicing in our 80s. How do you feel personally and professionally about the fact 
that you have been denied as a medical doctor the use of these potentially healing substances for almost your entire medical career. It, it saddens me greatly. I mean, now finally we're seeing some progress. Uh, ketamine is uh, used because ketamine was used uh, mostly for anesthesia, especially for children, but it can be used off-label, you know, for other purposes, and, and it's being uh, used uh, both as a uh, intravenous infusion over several hours. Uh, one of the drug companies came up with a variant of ketamine, S-ketamine, and uh, they're using it intranasally. I think each each time costs about eight hundred dollars. I mean, absurd. Absurd. Yeah, really. The, there is there's a um, a lovely. Um, clinic in Berkeley called the Sage Institute that was started by doctors Genesee Herzberg and Jason Butler, and they're doing low-fee ketamine treatment to indigenous and low-income people, the Sage Institute. Uh, be nice, you might want to meet them sometime and, uh, and help them if you can. Uh, and during the pandemic, they've actually been doing Zoom ketamine therapy where the patient comes to the clinic, gets the lasange, goes home, turns on the Zoom, the therapist is on the other side, and the patient ingests the lasange, and then they have the therapeutic session. Uh, so that is moving forward. But as you point out, and rightfully so, LSD is still illegal. Now, when were you first introduced to MDMA? I'm trying to remember the first time probably at a, at a rave. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I knew well Sasha Shogun. And when, when I first started writing my columns, if I had questions about the effects of drugs and I couldn't answer them, I would call on Sasha Shogun. A at that time, he didn't want any publicity. He asked me never to mention his name. And he went on that way until he published uh, the book, uh, Pikal, you know, Phenethyl Means I've Known and Loved. Pikal. Yes. Uh, but before that, he didn't want any publicity, but I always relied on him. Uh, I, I did not ever receive any drugs from him. What can you tell us about your experiences with MDMA? Did, were you able to use it as a medicine bef before it became illegal? No, no, because even when it was legal, it was not legal to use it medically. That is, uh, one could have been faulted. Medically, I've always valued my medical license. I've never had any problems with the medical board. Don't want to. No, same here. Uh, so I, I never use it with uh, patients. So, but you use it personally. Yes. What can you tell us about the effect of MDMA on Gene Schoenfeld, on Doctor Gene Schoenfeld? Well, of course, it may be very friendly. I mean, I, I wasn't hugging everyone in sight, but it, it you know there were warnings about making, uh, making long commitments soon after taking MDMA because the, you know, one of the effects is, is feeling, you know, close, feeling love for everyone and everything. And so, you know, there were warnings, uh, you don't want to get, get married during this time or make any such uh, commitment, but it, it did cause a uh, great, you know, relaxation, uh, you know, it kind of abolishes anxiety temporarily. Do you agree that it 
increases empathy? Yes, yes, I do. It, one of the side effects is that people may feel depressed after it wears off. And how long might that depression last? A few days, maybe a day or two. Okay, it doesn't become chronic. No, no. Now, we didn't mention this with the LSD, so I'm coming back to it. Are there any warnings that you would give people with regard to LSD use? Yes. Uh, people who have had serious mental health problems should not use it, you know, unless uh, they have a, a therapist, you know, who advises using it because it, it has been known to trigger psychoses in people who are prone to having psychoses. And some people who have taken LSD had a psychotic break and didn't come back. And I think, you know, these were people with pre-existing mental health problems. So it's necessary to be very cautious, you know, about the use of LSD in, uh, in people with mental health problems that are pre-existing. Okay, uh, so, it's, so it's possible to trigger a pre-existing mental health condition with LSD and, and, and cause a psychosis. On the other hand, Dave Nichols, the foremost LSD researcher on the planet, has told us with great authority, there's never been a death, no mortality as a function of LSD. Right. I, I've been involved in three instances where, where people mistook LSD powder for cocaine, and they put out lines of white powder. I mean, the first time, uh, a, uh, a woman was married to a friend of mine, and, and he had had large amounts of, of LSD. He was, I think he was distributing it at that time. He was away, and she was with a girlfriend, and the, and they decide, oh, they'd like to have some cocaine. So they rummaged around in his drawers and they found this vial with white powder and they put out lines. And one of the uh, women sniffed a line. It probably took about 40,000 micrograms. And, and then she realized it wasn't cocaine, it was LSD. Uh, she was taken to a hospital in Santa Cruz. And they called me about this. So I called the hospital. I told them, this is not someone who's having a, a bad LSD trip. This is someone who overdosed on LSD. Uh, you know, because her pupils were widely dilated, and they put her on a ventilator, and uh, she didn't need it. But but they weren't accustomed. I mean, very few people had ever seen an LSD overdose. Uh, she recovered on her own with no treatment, and uh, she uh, resumed using LSD occasionally after that, but she was, of course, careful about, you know, what she was really getting. Uh, in, in another case, a, uh, a woman was cleaning her house, and she wanted some more energy to clean the house, and again, she found a vial with a white powder, uh, sniffed it, realized it was not cocaine, but LSD, and she called her husband. Anyway, they took her to San Francisco General Hospital, and I called them and I told them this is not an LSD bad trip. This is an overdose. But same thing, they put her on a ventilator. She totally recovered and she's just fine now. Yeah. So, you, yeah, you so these are, so some of these people sniff up to 100,000 micrograms of, micro, of LSD. Uh, no deaths, as you pointed out, there have, have not been any human deaths attributed to LSD. A hundred thousand micrograms. I can Im hardly even imagine 
I mean, I've, I've taken LSD hundreds of times uh, and I still take it and, uh, and, and I, in my 80s and I still I, I do uh, microdosing, which as you point out, uh, small amounts is, a, is an energizer. There's no question about it. And a very pleasant one at that because it doesn't have amphetamine in it. So it's sort of a non-jangly uh, energizer, which is quite pleasant. But 100,000 MU, oh my word, I mean, it's, it's almost unimaginable uh, what, what her inner space, if she had any inner space, I would imagine she just went to the cosmos and stayed there until she came back yes. uh, with no yes. ego in, in between whatsoever. Uh, those are, those are uh, really some, some stories. Um, Rick Doblin tells us that he thinks MDMA will be a prescription drug within a couple of years. Uh, coming pretty quickly. Yeah, I know. We keep hearing a few more years. A few, few more, more years. years as they stretch it out. Do you see the potential for the use of MDMA in psychotherapy, in particular in couples therapy? And if so, tell us a bit of. Yes, yes, I do because it it uh, it's really I don't many people don't regard it as a psychedelic because um, it generally doesn't produce illusions or hallucinations. Uh, Yes, I, I think it, it it was before it was made illegal. It was uh, used by some therapists, not not many medical doctors, but more uh, psychotherapists who were using it in uh, therapy, either with couples or individually. Yes, it has a great potential, and I, I do hope, as uh, as Rick has predicted, maybe in a couple of years, <laughs> be made legal. But we'll see. Yes, we're 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 uh, we're hoping. So now. You're 87 years old. Have you been using psychedelics in your 80s? Yes. And which ones do you use? And tell us a little about your experience. I've done enough vomiting and had enough diarrhea. So, you know, I, I'm really not so interested now in using plant psychedelics. Although I must say that, you know, I enjoyed mescaline, you know, and peyote, but I haven't had the opportunity to use those substances uh, for some time. I use LSD. And how often do you use it? You know, it, it depends. Uh, usually I think I'm not using it often enough, but maybe every few months. I have the exact same feeling that I don't <laughs> use it often enough. And so what I do is I remind myself to use it. And when I do, I'm always so glad I did. And then I sort of forget or something. And I tell myself, I'm, I should do this once a month. I'm 83 years old. This is wonderful experience. And then somehow time sort of goes by until I remind myself again. Have you been microdosing, Gene? No. Um, I mean, I have. I've tried that. But no, I don't do microdosing. Yeah, it's very different because by its very nature, it's, you know, it's subsensate. If you, if you can feel it, that means it's, by definition, it's not a microdose. Right. But, but, uh, but, but there have been some interesting reports, particularly, I think, Ayelet Waldman's book, A Really Good Day, where she talks about her manic depressive psychosis or manic depressive bipolar experiences for 20 years using all everything in American uh, pharmacopoeia and nothing worked. And then she bumped, met Jim Fadiman and she started microdosing and, and had, you know, like a miracle recovery. And I've heard many other stories uh, of people suffering in that way, which is sort of interesting because you gave us a proper warning about people with 
serious mental health backgrounds not using large doses of LSD, but we also have uh, this, these cases of people with serious mental uh, health issues using tiny amounts and getting a benefit, which is... Which is yes, cool. yes, but it, I, I think in such cases, they must have a, a, a qualified therapist, either a physician or another therapist experienced you know, with the effects of these drugs. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I used to do uh, rock medicine. I, I would see people coming to large rock concerts, taking LSD for the first time and having a, a bad experience because there would be thousands of people, loud music, crowds, you know, and they would, they would freak out. You know, there are bad LSD experiences. And uh, certainly the first time or times that someone uses a psychedelic, they should not go to a, a large, crowded, noisy oh. event. Oh, my gosh. Can it's unimaginable. You know, nowadays, of course, all of us involved in the movement, the movement being the freedom to take what we want in the privacy of our own homes and see it as our constitutional right. But we're all waving the banner of set and setting, and, right? Exactly. Your, your, your mental set has to be appropriate. The setting yes. has to be, and we're all referring that people should always have a guide with them. Because yes. as you know, when you have a guide, there's no such a thing as a bad trip. The darker the stuff you get into, the more you can conquer and come away having dealt with it. Yes. But if to deal with it alone can be terrifying. Yes. Anything you want to say as we're wrapping up? David's giving us the signal that it's time we call this <laughs> lovely conversation to a close. No, I hope to see you in person sometime, Richard. That would be wonderful. Maybe you'll come up to Wilbur Hot Springs and get in the hot water with me. And we'll, 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 t we'll, we'll tip our hats to our old friend, Margot. Yes, yes, I would like that. Okay. So, and thank you all for joining us for today's edition of Mind, Body, Health and Politics. Tune in again nine o'clock next week, Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for. And it's, it's imperative for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.